Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. All right, friends, nice to be with you today. Sean McDowell filling in for the one and only the great Frank Turek. We've got an excellent topic for you today. One of the most common discussions in the media that Christians need to be ready with an answer for is the topic of pro-life. And it's no secret that we're in radical time of transformation where the pro-life movement is shifting and we need to adapt and be ready to defend the unborn. Well, our guest today is actually my co-host with the Think Biblically podcast and a colleague of mine, dear friend from Talbot School of Theology, Dr. Scott Ray, who is hands down one of the leading Christian ethicists today. Scott, I don't think you've been on Cross-Examine before, so it's my treat to welcome you to Cross-Examine Radio. Well, thanks, Sean. Really happy to be with you all and uh, love Frank's show and uh, happy to be part of it. Well, this is a conversation you and I have had many times, but let's jump in and talk about your initial response. I think it's maybe been eight months ago or so, it was last summer, when Roe versus Wade was overturned. Now, to frame this for folks, you have been in the pro-life movement probably three or four decades. I don't want to unnecessarily date you here, Scott, but you've been doing this for a long time. What was your reaction to that uh, ruling? Well, the Dobbs the Dob decision, the Mississippi case that overturned Roe v. Wade, my initial reaction was this is the way Roe v. Wade should have been decided mm. in 1973, mm. where instead of one law being applicable across all states, the court should have, and this is the legal critics have been saying this for decades, they should have left the decision to each individual state to have to craft laws governing abortion that reflect the will of the people in that state. It's exactly what the Supreme Court did about 25 years later when they made their decision on assisted suicide. They said either either one was constitutionally consistent, but they ought to leave it to the states to decide. In the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, about half of our states have put into play uh, various laws that have restricted access to abortion primarily because they they hold to what we think is the fundamental truth in this, that the unborn have the right to life that needs to be protected. Okay, Scott, let me play the skeptic with you here a little bit. You said it should go back to the individual states. I could imagine some people thinking, wait a minute, you don't think murder or manslaughter should be held by individual states. You don't think rules against rape should be held at individual states. If this is really an unborn human being, shouldn't we have a blanket protection for life for the unborn constitutionally down? Why make an exception for this one uh, that we don't for other areas that are arguably comparable? Well, typically in our, in our legal history, some of, some of the most controversial issues, there's, there's, no de, there's no real debate over whether murder is wrong or whether rape should be outlawed. But on the things that, things that are divisive and, and uh, contested, uh, those moral issues, I think the, what, what the debate is about is that the court should not be putting out a, a broad universal rule that's applicable to all the states. 
Instead, let, let each state decide what they deem best according to the will of their individual voters. Now, I think you can make, you can make an argument why, why states should have laws that would protect the life of the unborn. Uh, but I think in, in our juris, history of jurisprudence, we, I think, and as I think it's been, the, it's been the wisest course that we have allowed uh, the, the will of the people to be reflected and for states to be responsive to that. So I think in this case, uh, this is huge progress for the unborn. The, you know, the, of course, the, pro, the pro-life battle is not over yet, but it's a significant victory that I think has been won. Uh, it raises other questions that I think we need to pay attention to as well, which we'll get into. Yeah, we'll shift into some of those questions. And for those of you watching, we're talking about how the pro-life, the abortion uh, issue has shifted and also how to make an effective pro-life argument and advance the pro-life cause today. Now, in some ways, I wasn't shocked when Roe versus Wade was overturned just because of the nature of the Supreme Court. But if I go back and I look at where the pro-life movement has been since really the 1980s or really maybe the late 70s, in some ways, it's surprising. And I had a real emotional moment like, holy cow, this horrific ruling has been overturned. That was my first response. My second one was, in some ways, the pro-life movement is just shifted into a different phase. This isn't over. In some ways, it's really just beginning because we're back where it should have been, like you said, decades ago. Was that your response too? I think, yeah, that's that's basically correct. Um, and I think what 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 the pro-life movement I think has done very effectively is mm. a two-pronged strategy, where they've been they've been at work on the legal front since 1973, largely unsuccessfully. Mm. Uh, and there have been a, a, a group of very faithful. Uh, committed lawyers, Americans United for Life is an example, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is another example, uh, that have been at work on the legal front, la- I think largely beating their head against the wall uh, for uh, that amount of time. And I, I remember saying to my students you know, 10 years ago that I don't, I don't envision Roe v-, Roe v. Wade being overturned in our lifetime. Wow. Uh, because the legal precedent had been so solid, the court had had several opportunities over the years to reverse it and had shown no inclination to do so. Uh, and then this this court, I think, I think this court got it right uh, and to turn that matter back over to the states. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I, I was delighted. I think it, it did raise other questions. I know I know other people had different emotional reactions to that. Sure. Uh, and the, the I think it largely reflects the success of the, the on ground. That's the second prong of this, the on ground movement of the pro of the pro life movement, uh, where the at the grassroots, I think the the battle over the life of the unborn has has been the tides being has been turned mm. uh, over the years. And primarily, I think through the advent of things like ultrasound technology, particularly 4D ultrasound, that allows physicians to look into the womb like they've never been able to do before. Is this really up close and personal look at the unborn? And I think what what the pro choice movement I think has recognized is that it's getting harder and harder to make a plausible case that mm-hmm. the unborn is simply is simply a piece of tissue analogous to your liver or a kidney or something like that. Um, so I think at the grassroots, it's been, it's been very successful in turning the tide of public opinion. Well, as we get into the next segment, uh, we can talk about really where that debate has shifted to. 
but you hinted at certain things that the pro-life movement has done well. And I'd say we the Pregnancy Resource Center movement is remarkable and it's significant. And it shows this isn't just about words and arguments, but caring for moms, caring for dads, caring for newborns. I think obviously now we see the success of the legal strategy, at least the advancement of ideas through the legal system. But there's also been this apologetic side that you and I have been a big part of, advancing arguments for pro-life. Those three things, it seems like we've done well. Would you add anything to that? Would you tweak that? Bottom line is, what have we done well before we get to where the topic has shifted to today? Well, yeah, I think we've I think we've done we've done well at making the case apologetically. Although, in my view, there is there's no substitute for technology mm. making the case for us in this. In fact, I I think technology has been the best friend. Mm. of the pro-life movement and perhaps even more influential than the legal and the apologetic side wow. of things. Uh, because to see, you know, to see somebody like uh, Naomi Wolf, who 20 years ago uh, chided her pro-choice colleagues to s- stop trying to argue for something that can't be won, uh, that the unborn is nothing more than a piece of tissue. Uh, and she took tons and tons of criticism for that. But I think she was right about that. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't think that's taken hold in the pro-choice side quite like we like like we would have hoped. But I think it's been a significant dent in in that view that has just, I think, assumed for so long that the unborn child is is nothing more than just a piece of tissue. Well, seeing that ultrasound convinces many women to choose life. That technology has been powerful. All right, when we come back, we're here with Dr. Scott Ray on Cross-Examined Radio. We're going to take a look at where the topic is shifting to today and the debates over over over-the-counter abortion, what's called the abortion pill. See you in a minute. All right, friends, welcome back to Cross-Examined Radio. I am not Frank Turek. I am Sean McDowell filling in for the one and only Frank Turk today. Our guest is Dr. Scott Ray, a colleague and friend of mine from Talbot School of Theology, one of the leading ethicists today. We're talking about how the pro-life movement has shifted. Now, in just a second, Scott, I'm going to ask you about this debate going on with over-the-counter abortion pill, what that means, what's at stake here. But first off, those of you watching will not want to miss Frank in person on May 6th with Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane at the Unshaken Conference. Check out unshakenconference.com, and this will be at Chino Hills in Southern California to learn how to defend your faith. All right, Scott, let's pick up where we were last time. This debate has shifted to a drug called mifepristone, and it's possible I mispronounced that. Explain what that is as the over-counter abortion pill. Yeah, com- Sean, it's commonly known as RU486. That's the shorthand uh, phrase for it. And roughly half wow. uh, abortions today are done using mifepristone. Uh or are you 486? And basically, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a drug that expels a a growing unborn child in the womb, expels the child from the womb, and causes a miscarriage. Mm. Uh, and the dose, the dosage of the drug that's used depends on how far along the woman is in her pregnancy, and it's really important that the the that the woman get the dosage right. Uh, or else there's there's often a need for some sort of surgical or medical follow-up 
uh, in in lots of cases, there's a need for that. So the, it's being advertised as this completely private, over-the-counter, do-it-yourself abortion. And that's a little bit misleading, I think, uh, because in lots of cases, uh, some sort of follow-up from a physician is necessary. And, mm-hmm. and usually, uh, some sort of pre-exam from a physician is 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 medically indicated to find out exactly how long the woman is in her how how far along she is in her pregnancy and you get the doses just right, um, so it's a you know there's a lot a lot of controversy over this the FDA has a, has approved this uh, for you for widespread use across the country uh, until just recently where about two weeks ago a district court judge in Texas. Uh, invalidated the FDA's approval in Texas and essentially outlawed the abortion pill. Um, and other states, in, other states are expected to follow this trend, uh, and the Texas ruling will stand until it's, you know, until appeals courts uh, rule on that. The uh, the supporters of RU46 have vowed that they will take this all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm. I have no doubt that it will get there. Oh wow! Eventually. Um, and the, I think the question is now. I think what's still to be determined is does the does the judge's ruling stay in effect until that time comes, or will will an appeals court put a stay on the judge's order? That's I think the only thing still left to be determined. Uh, but I think it's it's that's where the that's where the discussion about abortion has gone. Now, why um, has it shifted to the over account the counter abortion uh, pill? Rather than going to say a Planned Parenthood clinic, is because it's cheaper. Is it easier? Is that people sensed that some limitations might come, and the pro-choice movement has been preparing for this? What are the causes driving why the debate has moved towards RU486? I'll say it's it's all of the above. Okay, uh, and you know now it take it, ta- it really takes the third party out of the picture. So the physician. Uh, I, you know, ideally for for supporters of this, the physician would be out of the picture, uh, and so it's it can be advertised as simply a, a, a decision for a woman about her own health and about her own body um, that the state should not be getting involved in, according to the pro-choice movement. Um, I think the, uh, the there's an article today in the Los Angeles Times about how the the mental health effects of abortion. Are, are being hotly contested now, mm. uh, and it would it, it, that that would apply to surgical abortions as well. Um, but the, the I think the main reason that RU forty six has taken hold is the argument from privacy, for one, and it, it is much cheaper, and it is it is advertised to be much safer than a surgical abortion. That that might be true in the earlier stages of pregnancy. It's definitely not true in later stages. Uh, but I think the mental health aspects are something that the pro-life movement has camped on for a long time and I think has gone underappreciated. Uh, the impact on a woman's life and health, to just, just that the abortion decision makes. Um, and that I, think, that is, I think is a really significant part of this that should not be underplayed. And I know we'll, we'll get to more of this in, in a bit. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's the part of this that is, I think, most hotly contested. The uh, critics of the judge's decision in Texas have, have basically said that he either ignored or underappreciated, uh, or, or I'm sorry, overvalued 
the mental health uh, ramifications of abortion. I actually think he got that just about right. Oh, interesting. Now, you and I would argue if there were not mental health repercussions, abortion would still be wrong because it results in the ending of the life of a preborn human being. Nonetheless, that's a, that's a significant mental health issue for mm. for the preborn child. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and even more than that. Fair enough. Now, you and I interviewed an OBGYN, Donna Harrison, a number of months ago, and she talked about late-term abortion and the medical effects that it has. And this was in a briefing before the Supreme Court. And if I remember correctly, she talked about some of the effects. There's a link with breast cancer and having late-term abortions. There's a strong link with mental health, anxiety, depression, loneliness. There's a strong link to increased bleeding and the inability to get pregnant when somebody wants to after they've had late-term abortions. But RU86, I think traditionally was within maybe the first 10 weeks, and the later FDA ruling shifted it to like 16 or 17 weeks. What kind of mental effects are we seeing and or other health effects on women who have this even early in pregnancy? Well, I think it, you know, it shouldn't be a big surprise that we see some of the same mental health impacts that we see when women miscarry. Mm. Uh, and I think that's largely undervalued and underreported. Mm. Uh, you know, you ask most women who have, who have natural miscarriages, uh, they grieve the loss of that child because they've had a sense of bonding and connection mm. to, you know, and you don't, you, don't, you don't have that connection to things. You have that connection to persons. Um, and so I, I think even at early stages, you know, women deeply feel the impact of miscarriages. Uh, and I think with abortion, it's, it's I think, a, maybe a bit more complicated because though it's true that women's, a lot of women resort to abortion out of desperation, mm. that doesn't mean that they escape this sense that what they did with the abortion decision is somehow causatively different than a natural miscarriage that they had no control over. Uh, and so, I, I, I mean, I think a good case can be made that the mental health impacts when the abortion decision is made are actually a little stronger and more complicated than what wow. takes place in a natural miscarriage. I, I and, think- the, and of course, the later in pregnancy, the greater the sense of bonding. And I think that's true even for women who don't want to keep the child. Mm. Uh, you know, we see this some of the early cases of surrogacy for example, where women knew by contract that they were going to give up the child, nonetheless bonded with the child, and some of them actually wanted, ended up going to court to keep the child. This is why uh, infertility clinics today will, will will not allow someone to be mm. a surrogate who's not been pregnant at least once before. Wow! Because the, you don't you don't know what that's you don't know what that's like until you've experienced that, um, and so I, I think that's real. And I, I think it's time we stop devaluing the experience of women, what they tell us about the aftermath of abortion. And it's it's very similar to miscarriage. And it's even it's even worse with stillbirth. And I'd say late late term abortions probably have a similar impact on the mental health of someone that a stillbirth does. Now, biologically, if you just think about it, it's obvious that an abortion is jarring to a woman's body, let alone the unborn. So sometimes we're told it's just another surgery. But if somebody, for example, has a tumor removed, that tumor is an invader that's unnatural. 
that is destroying the body. So to take it out is to help the body operate the way it's supposed to. But whether a surgical abortion or RU486 is actually jarring the body, a woman's body, from how it is supposed to naturally develop and grow in this symbiotic relationship between the mom and between the unborn. That's at the heart of why it's so jarring and damaging is that it's stopping violently this natural development of the woman's body. Doesn't that make sense why we would see not only mental health issues, but also physical issues like bleeding and other damage to a woman's body? Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense, I think. And of course, you know, we would say that the, you know, that the central question on this is, you know, what's happening to the, the, the preborn child in the womb uh, as opposed to what's happening to the woman's body. Um, and... You know the da- the damage to the preborn child is irreversible. Now, w- women do recover from having abortions, mm-hmm. though <clears throat> I think the the response to that is often longer than Planned Parenthood lets on. I mean, the you know the standard line of Planned Parenthood is you come in Friday and you go back to work on Monday. Wow, and that is that is light years from the truth. Mm. Um, and you know, only somebody who, in my view, is really callous toward the life that they're carrying, uh, takes it that you know, you know, that much in stride. So, should the pro-life movement? Let me just play skeptic here a little bit. Say, well, at least it's not the kind of later abortions that we know rip apart limbs, uh, the the kind of violent acts that happen in abortion. Uh, we know at this stage, the unborn, presumably, we know, is not experiencing pain. Isn't this a positive thing that we're seeing the debate move back towards the pill? Should we see it that way or not? I'd say not, not really because it, it obscures the central point. Mm. You know, whether the unborn child can feel pain or not is irrelevant to this. That's an emotional argument, not a metaphysical mm. one. Uh, and it's just, in my view, it just is not relevant to this. Um, and we, you know, in fact, we see. You know, we see much, much earlier than we expected when surgical abortions take place, the child actually, you know, try, you know cringes and tries to get, tries to backs away mm. from the instruments because there's, they have some sort of sense of what's going on. Um, but I think, I, you know, I, I'm not in favor of anything that is going to obscure the, the central point that we're making about the unborn. Now, I think it's okay. I think, you know, there are times in the political arena All right, folks, we will be back. This is Cross-Examine Radio. Sean McDowell filling in for Frank Turk. When we come back, we're going to talk about how we need to pivot as a pro-life movement and make a basic case for life. We'll see you in the next segment. All right, friends, welcome back to Cross-Examine Radio. Sean McDowell filling in for the one and only Frank Turk. Today, we're talking about how the pro-life movement has shifted, what bills are at stake, and then how to make a good pro-life case today. Our guest is my colleague, actually my co-host for a podcast we do together called the Think Biblically Podcast, Dr. Scott Ray, one of the leading authorities on this issue who's been speaking, writing, debating for decades Scott, let's jump into this case that is taking place in Florida because I think it's really indicative of how the pro-life movement is shifting. So talk about what happened in this case and uh, what it means. 
Yeah, the governor of Florida uh, signed yes, yesterday uh, signed into law a bill that would ban abortions uh, at the six week mark. Uh, from from after six weeks, abortion will be illegal in the state of Florida. Now it's <clears throat> there's a little bit of legal wrangling that still has yet to come before that law is enforced because Florida uh, has has in place a law that was similar to the one in Mississippi that uh, was the basis for, for the, the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade. It has a 15-week ban. Uh, that's, it's at the 15-week point. Okay. So they, the, the, court, the state Supreme Court in Florida will have to invalidate that 15-week law before the six-week law can take effect. So it's, it's unclear when that will take effect. But the governor that passed the House, uh, the legislature last week in Florida, and the governor actually signed it yesterday. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, front page news, as you might expect. Uh, they also put into law restrictions on the availability of RU486 uh, and say that that can, that can only be made available with a doctor's prescription. So they essentially ended the over-the-counter abortion era in Florida. Uh, and now, chances are that that law and others will be, will be challenged, uh, but given the precedent that's been sent, set by this current court with Roe v. Wade, I think a constitutional challenge to that law is unlikely. Wow. Uh, so I think it's, it's likely to stand and actually could be precedent setting. Uh, in fact, they, the legal experts expect that other states that have similarly um, constructed legislatures, similarly conservative legislatures, will do something similar. Okay, so just to make sure folks are following this, when Roe versus Wade was struck down last summer, it put the authority back to the states. So the states could decide to make abortion legal through the entire uh, pregnancy or make it completely illegal. Florida had legislation already pending and has passed, signed by the governor, that says any abortion physically in the state of Florida either somebody has the procedure done or orders RU486 is against the law. So in other words, the unborn is protected by the law of Florida all the way down to uh, six weeks and beyond. And it's essentially, <clears throat> I think it's essentially protecting the unborn from conception forward. Mm. Because at six weeks, you know, it's, you know, that's really, that's one of the earliest parts of pregnant points in pregnancy that a woman actually finds out that she's pregnant. It's usually when she finds out she's about six weeks along. So uh, it is, I think it, it essentially outlaws most first trimester abortions as well. So why would they go to six weeks rather than just say protected <clears throat> the entire way? I knew there was a clause that says incest and rape. They made an exception in Florida for that. Why six weeks? Why not just outlaw it entirely? I think I think because essentially because they've done the same thing. You know, they've okay. done the same thing, and they're I think they're maybe allowing a you know an open door for a, a woman who is raped and wants to take uh, the morning after pill preemptively. Uh, I think that's what, what's one. I think one of the fears of the pro-choice movement is that that if the morning after pill will be the next domino to fall. Mm. In this, so my guess is they want to leave the door open for for women who uh, have been victims of sexual assault in that in cases like that. 
Okay, now this is one ruling. We've also seen rulings <clears throat> in Michigan that seem to go the opposite direction. Is this what we're kind of seeing the dominoes falling and states just solidifying roughly mm -hmm. half really conservative, half really liberal, and probably not a lot in the mid kind of in between? Is that how we're probably going to see think, things play th out? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, for example, you know, our home state of California here, mm. uh, they not, not only solidified the right to abortion for all nine months of pregnancy, but they the state was declared an abortion sanctuary for women who were coming from other states. Uh, California has also been, they've been stockpiling uh, RU486 uh, in the event that that would become outlawed wow. in some states. That that actually looks, looks to, I mean, from the, from the perspective of a pro-choice person, that looks to have been a very smart move uh, because the availability of that is now restricted in Florida. Uh, in ways that it, that they didn't expect, so I think you're see, you're seeing it become more hardened, uh, and we may see, we may see extremes on both sides. Now, part of this Florida out. ruling that I thought was strategic and good was that it included a lot of money to help women who are pregnant. So they're not just saying, "Hey, we've ruled this out. Good luck." They're putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. And I forget the exact funds, and I don't understand how it would translate in Florida. But the idea of saying, number one, we're going to protect the unborn, but we're also going to financially help women with unwanted pregnancies seems like a wise move and just a good move going forward and good precedent for other states. Well, I think that's the, I think the state's obligated to do that. Hmm. Um and I think the I think the church is also obligated to participate in that effort as well, and I think it's largely gone underpublicized what uh, the 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 grassroots side of the pro life movement, which has largely been religiously grounded, uh, either you know evangelical Protestants or Roman Catholics, uh, all of the things that are being done and have been on, done on the ground for you know twenty or thirty years, you know the crisis pregnancy movement is is wide widespread across the country yet super underpublicized mm. uh, you know and there are other there are other movements in effect uh, that that provide assistance to women uh, and and the, and the children who if, if they just if women decide to keep the pregnancy uh, there's there's lots of things that are available to provide assistance for for them uh, and I think that's that's a part of our obligation uh, because I understand. You know, women in some of these, you know, southern states, for example, feeling like they have no alternative to a desperate mm -hmm. situation. Um, and we don't, the goal, I think, is is to, for women never to feel like they are so desperate that they have to resort to ending a pregnancy to get out of their desperation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's in, you, you, we're not saying that when a woman's pregnant that she, that she has to become a parent. She has to become a social parent. Now, she is a parent actually once she becomes pregnant. That's but right. uh, that you, you can you can end you can end a relationship with your child by doing things other than ending the pregnancy and killing the child. Hmm. And that's where I, I, the goal I think is is for no woman to feel so desperate that she has to resort to that. And so I think the the idea that abortion becomes rare. I think is one is is a thing that we have in common with lots of parts of the pro-choice movement. Uh, you know who, who you know they see it as, as a necessity, 
but not something that's glorified or valorized. So in some ways, there's been a lot of people criticizing any political movement by pro-lifers, that we should stay out of politics. It seems like there's kind of a political angle, Roe versus Wade, and what we're seeing in Florida is a positive step for life. But there's also the church's role and individual roles and nonprofit things like pregnancy resource centers. It seems like all of these play an important role in this. So it'd be unwise to put all our chips, so to speak, in the political movement, but it'd also be unwise to ignore that element. I mean, we saw that voting in politics is one lane amongst others that can result in the protection of the unborn. So how do you balance those different factors as Christians look at the pro-life movement going forward? I think first, I think it's I think it's incumbent on every follower of Jesus uh, to take this issue seriously. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think this is something that we can say is just optional. Um, and you know, if I feel like getting involved in it, I will. If I won't, if I don't, I won't. Uh, you know, the life of the life of the unborn is, I think, one of those sort of fundamental ethical issues. That as a church we have to stand for. Mm. Now, at the same time, I think we are obligated to care for the women who are impacted by having Amen. unwanted pregnancies. And it's not—it's not enough, in my view, to say, "Well, you—you you knew you could get pregnant when you had sex, therefore, you know, suck it up. You're on your own." Uh, I think we have an obligation to care for many of these women who are in very desperate circumstances who don't have the means to to travel out of state and don't have the means to raise an additional child. Uh, and so providing the medical care that's necessary, uh, providing the, 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 past, the pastoral care, for lack of a better term, uh, the spiritual care, uh, and you know, helping care for these women after the babies are born, if they decide to keep them, and then caring for, you know, caring for the children especially, if they are put into the foster care or adopted out to families, uh, I think the uh, you know the 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 prospect of you know somebody having a baby and putting the child immediately into foster care I think is a, is a relatively unattractive one, mm. uh, and therefore I think it, it's up it, it's it's incumbent on the church I think to step into the gap there and to provide those fostering services, uh, and this is groups like Families Forward, uh, you know are. You know they they've taken up root in mil, many many churches around the country. That's a great organization that, that provides temporary foster care for you know women in a wide variety of circumstances that need it. So things like that. I think that you know I think if somebody feels a calling to be involved in the political arena, you know, mm. good, so be it. Um, I, I suspect most followers of Christ are not going to have that particular sense of calling. Sure. I think we're all we're all called to vote. And vote our convictions, um, but there are lots of other things that can be done that don't require specialized training. They don't require, you know, they don't require any additional education. You know, they just require a willing heart and some time and energy to do it. Well, I appreciate this all hands on deck approach that you're talking about. That this is a holistic issue. We need to care for the unborn. We need to care for women. We need to be engaged in the political process. We need to put our funds where our mouth is, so to speak. We've seen positive gains already, which is super encouraging, but we can't give up 
When we come back for our last segment, Scott, let's take a look at the most common pro-choice arguments we hear and offer our responses to them. So join us. I'm here with Dr. Scott Ray, filling in for Frank Turk, Cross-Examine Radio. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back to Cross-Examine Radio. Sean McDowell here filling in for Dr. Frank Turek. In this final section we have together, we're going to talk about and respond to the most common pro-choice arguments. And we put a link below because our guest today, Dr. Scott Ray and I, spent about an hour walking through the top 12 pro-choice arguments. Here we want to equip you with quick responses to them that might come up in conversation. Scott, here's a simple case that I often make. Let's lay out the positive case very quickly before we get to some of these objections for pro-life. And there's different ways to do this. I'll give a few steps. Number one, humans get human rights. Number two, the right to life is a human right. Number three, the unborn is human. Number four, therefore, the unborn has the right to life. That is a simple, common sense case. I didn't quote the Bible. I didn't use scripture. I just appealed to human rights. And of course, scripture backs this up. What's a basic pro-life case that you make? Well, here's what I what I would suggest is we start with what's medical. Okay. Uh, let me say, you know, from, from the point of conception, the, the unborn child is a living, distinct entity, human being, right? No, no debate about that. Yep. Uh, any embryology textbook will tell you that, that from conception forward, that's it. Okay. Second point, and this is where, uh, for, I think for the person who takes the scripture seriously, this ends the discussion. But the second point is that ending a pregnancy stops the handiwork of God in the womb. Hmm. There's no doubt. I mean, <clears throat> it does a lot of other things, but it stops God's handiwork in the womb. For a follower of Christ, that should be enough. Yep. I don't think we even have to show that the unborn child is a person for mm. that argument to, to stand. Okay. Third, that there is, there is no point between conception and birth that is a logical place where you can say, now you have a person and... But one day before you didn't. Hmm. Uh, even uh, birth is a change of location. Implantation is the same. Uh, viability just reflects medical technologies. Has nothing to mm -hmm. say about what the unborn child is like. Okay. Fourth, there are there are no um, there 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 are there are no. Uh, being, put it this way, being a person is something you are, not something you do. Right, okay. You don't have to achieve a certain set of qualities or characteristics in order to be uh, designated as a person. Okay. Because, you know, people under general anesthesia don't have any of those qualities, rationality, relationality, uh, self-conscious, things like that. Uh, even some people who are in a really deep sleep don't have those characteristics. Right, right. And then fifth... If I mean, the best way to do this is in, a, in an illustration, assuming that the unborn child is a person, 
then the unborn child actually not only has the right to life, I think you can make an argument that the unborn child has a claim on the mother's body for what he or she needs to flourish and mm. mature. Take for take for example. I know that's that's a you know, Frank's going to get some grief about that one, um, <laughs> but I think it's true. Think about think about a couple who's got say say they have say they have twins, you know, six month old twins, and they're going crazy trying to care for these twins. They're not getting any sleep, and they decide I got to get away. Uh, and so we're going on vacation. We're going to Hawaii for three weeks. Uh, but with all they do is they stack a you know big stack of diapers, put a bunch of bottles in the fridge, pat the twins on the head, and say we'll see you in three weeks. They don't make they don't make any provisions for care, nothing like that. Who's likely to meet them on their return? Okay. angry neighbors, angry in laws, the police, maybe the district attorney, sure. and what would they will be charged with a number of criminal offenses. And the reason they would do that is because the rights of the child have been violated because those newborn children have a claim on the parents for the resources that they need. And if the parents can't provide them, yep. the state steps in and puts them somewhere else. So even, even if we concede that the unborn child is a person, which the pro-choice movement is increasingly doing, we've Amazing. seen this lately too, uh, I think... Th then you make an argument if there's no difference between a newborn and the unborn, we can't, you know, child abandonment statutes ought to apply to the unborn like they are, like they are to the newborn. That, that makes sense. Now, our friend Katie Faust at Them Before Us says when you deliver a child, when a woman does at the hospital, and you go in and say you see a bunch of, of children being cared for in the nursery, you don't randomly pick out a child. You have the responsibility to the That's child right. you conceived and delivered minimally to make sure that child is okay. That rests on you, secondary somebody else by default. So if you have that responsibility to the child, then that child has the right for you to care for it as the parents. So I think your case is solid. Now let's give some bullet point responses to some of these objections. For example, here's one where people say, well, isn't abortion just health care? And my quick response is, what is health care? It's care that's meant to improve the life of a patient. How many patients are there when a woman is pregnant? Every OBGYN will tell you there's two. So if health care is to improve the life of one of the patients and abortion violently ends it, then abortion cannot be considered health care. It's really that simple to me. Would you add anything to that objection? Yeah, this assumes that the, the unborn child is no different than a tumor that has to be removed. Mm. You know, removing a tumor is health care. You know, ending a pregnancy is not. I'd well leave, said. I'd leave it at that. Okay, so how about this one? Just yesterday, I was putting on Twitter a short video clip from our interview talking about this, and somebody said, here goes two men wanting to control women's bodies. First off, I thought, well, my wife is also pro-life, so this argument wouldn't work for her. Right. This is clearly just attacking the source rather than dealing with the argument. What would you add to that? I'd say in 1973, it was nine men who decided Roe v. Wade. Okay. Uh, no, nobody's disqualifying them from that because of their because of their gender. Mm. Uh, I think the other thing I would say that that that's an ad hominem argument, which mm. I describe as you know attacking the person. And not the position, and usually resorted to only for someone who's run out of other arguments and is and is intellectually desperate. 
Uh, so as a friend of mine put it, an ad hominem argument is when you're on the horns of a dilemma, you shoot the bull. <laughs> and that's and that, and that's I think what is done here. I I don't know too many. Uh, there there may be some crazy pro-lifers for whom that's true, but you know most most pro-lifers want to protect the life of the unborn. They have no desire to control women's bodies. Um, and I think we yeah. we, ought, we have to make a distinction between you know the, the unborn child is not tech not a part of the woman's body, technically right. speaking. It's a distinct entity, and in 50% of cases, with a different gender. It's it's dependent on the woman's body, and those are two really different things. And that degree of dependence only changes slightly once the child is born. Mm. Okay, how about this one? How about, uh, I also put another clip <laughs> from our conversation on Twitter, and somebody responded and said, well, are you in favor of banning you know, assault rifles. If not, don't call yourself pro-life. And I thought, obviously, we've had some school shootings recently that are very serious pro-life kinds of issues. But the difference here is nobody's saying we should have school shootings. Nobody's saying that. That's right. Both sides right. agree that we want to limit the violence and misuse of guns. One side says the best way is to get rid of or limit access to guns. The other might say having more guns, so to speak, and more people armed will minimize it. Now, we could look at the facts and have that debate, but it seems like it's a totally different issue that somebody could be pro-life and pro-guns, and there's not necessarily a contradiction there in my mind. Yeah, no, nobody's saying school shootings should become safe and rare. Um, and that, you know, we, and this is, this is a debate about the means, not the ends. You know, we agree on the ends. We, we disagree on the means to get there. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's, I think a legit, there's a legitimate place for self-defense. Uh, I wish, I wish we would have that same right given to the unborn, uh, mm. to defend themselves, um, uh, in the womb, which is supposed to be the safest place for them, um, but I don't think those are necessarily inconsistent. Um, now, I think we we can debate we can debate about you know whether people individuals ought to ought to be allowed sure. to own assault rifles. I think that's a legitimate debate. Sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't be unhappy if the law prohibited those. Sure. Um, but I don't want I don't want you know people to have to lose the right of self defense. Um, Fair enough, and that's a separate debate apart from being pro life that we could have. By the way, when you said safe, legal, and rare, that came from Clinton in the 90s. That's correct. Now people yeah. are saying, shout your abortion. Nobody is saying, shout your school shooting. No That's one right. on either side is in favor of this. How about the last one that we get is that you can't be pro-life, but also pro-death penalty. Is there a contradiction there? Because in me, to me, it yeah. seems like pro-life is saying we want to protect life. But if somebody... Ha innocent life, if somebody has done a murder or some other crime that warrants the death penalty, that's actually holding the value of life up. That would be the arguments. Your thoughts? We got about 30 seconds. Yeah. Con a convicted murderer is different than any innocent person, much less an innocent unborn child in the womb uh, who's not done anything yet. Um, so, uh, you know, that that I think is, you know, that's that's just a case where the you know, the, the, we, the, the premise is wrong, uh, that the unborn is somehow equivalent to a convicted murderer. And I think you can make a good case that 
mm. in order to protect life as best we can, we have the strongest possible penalties for murder, uh, and that the the life for life principle is something that the scripture upholds. If you want in-depth responses to the top arguments for pro-choice, check out the link below. Scott and I talk about this. And don't forget the Unshaken Conference, unshakenconference.com, Chino Hills, May 6th. Frank will be there, Alicia Childers, Natasha Crane. Sean McDowell filling in for Frank. Hope you enjoyed this episode on the topic of pro-life. See you soon.